Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the MedTech Impact Podcast, where you get to hear from leaders and innovators who are shaping the future of medical technology. I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Mikkeljohn. And we're your hosts of the show. I'd like to welcome to the show Steve Osborne, the managing member of Mince Levin's San Francisco office. Mince Levin's is specializing in med tech and the life science industry. Uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I know you bring on a lot of innovators and, and entrepreneurs, and uh, I appreciate you also bringing on the lawyers. Of course. It's always great to have a law perspective here. It's very important, a critical element of, of any med tech business. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Thanks. I hope, I hope we play a critical role. If we're doing it right, we're playing a critical role in that sort of growth story for any company. And particularly, I think, in a place like uh, med tech, where where you know you have a regulatory overlay in some companies, you have lots of complicated financing challenges, and you have sort of product challenges and and lots of needs, lots of fundraising needs to really get to that endpoint of having a company that's sort of helping patients, which is why we're all here. Exactly, yeah, and it's going to be exciting getting into all of this to start. Though Steve, you know, really interested, always want to help our audience understand a little bit more of who we're talking to, right? So. Uh, please share a little bit more about your background. You know, we're really interested in, in knowing kind of who you are and go back with, for us. You know, tell us about your upbringing and, and really those experiences that kind of led you uh, into that path in law and where you are today. That's great. Thanks, Kyle. So I grew up in San Francisco. I practice in San Francisco now. I grew up in San Francisco. I haven't always been in San Francisco, but I'm, uh, I, you know, my, I started here. And uh, you know, my interest in the law did not come. You know, a lot of a lot of lawyers, like their parents are lawyers, their their uncles are lawyers. I don't come from a family of lawyers, but my dad liked to watch LA Law when I was growing up. <laughs> and once in a while, when I couldn't sleep, I'd find myself out there with him. And there was these sort of group of people working together to help others. And some part of that really interested me. And I had another passion, which was the Slurpees at 7-Eleven. So I thought to myself when I was like eight, I'm going to be a lawyer like on LA Law. I'm going to be the guy at the Slurpee machine. And uh, the Slurpee thing didn't work out, so I became a lawyer. And uh, in many ways, since I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs, my father's an entrepreneur, my wife's an entrepreneur, my wife's father's an entrepreneur, my brothers are entrepreneurs. Since I'm surrounded by that, I think a lot of that has, uh, has also influenced my, my legal career. I went to Georgetown Law School in, in Washington, D.C., and I came out of school right as, a, as the dot-com world was exploding and, and, then, and then imploding, uh, both. Uh, I had both of those experiences. And so the, you know, coming back to San Francisco was a natural for me. Uh, and I, got a, I, I joined a law firm at that time that was sort of the top company helping startups go from that startup to, to IPO. It was called Brobeck. And uh, unfortunately, Brobeck was sort of a, one of the one of the catastrophes of the uh, dot com bust. In that, when we were overinvested in those kind of clients, and, and the and the firm went bankrupt. But I met this group of lawyers that I followed around to the next firm, uh, which was Baker McKenzie, a big international firm. And I really had this great experience. I worked for a really wonderful mentor, and you know, he created opportunities for me to to work in our Hong Kong office in, in 2006, and then in 2007 to 2009, I moved to London and worked in our London office. And I had a lot of great experiences uh, putting together sort of a legal practice, but I was always kind of interested in the business side. And so even when I was doing you know, those big law firm experiences originally, 
I was always constantly interested in what's going on with these clients. Why are they doing this? Uh, in some ways, I, I had this great opportunity in, in Hong Kong of really running kind of this these new REITs, like real estate investment trusts were new there. And it was such a complicated project because you had to take every all these properties and put them into a structure. So it was kind of a formation. There was merger and acquisition. And then we took them public. And in a lot of ways, these were not companies that were fully established. They were companies that were coming together, you know, uh, and the story was needing to be told in a way that was new. And I really enjoyed that. And I got a lot of experience with the investment bankers and the CEOs and understanding how to describe and look at their business, how to look at the financials of their business, how to look at what was successful and not successful. And I took that. And when I, we had our first baby, uh, our first child in, when we lived in London, my wife and I, my wife's in California too. So she said enough is enough and wanted to head back home to California. So I took that opportunity of, of just a little bit of a ability to change jobs. And I went and joined a client, a venture-backed startup. We were in the digital health space and very early on in the digital health space. And that was a great experience too, because I played more of a business role there than a legal role. And we raised a lot of money. We spent a lot of money. And ultimately, we weren't successful. But I really learned a lot about how to take the knowledge I had about risk management or about how to structure deals and really calibrate that to the stage where the client is. You know, in many ways, my big clients, the big firm, weren't willing to take a lot of risk. And so my job was to close out legal risk. But when I was in the startup with the CEO every day, to be fair, we could bet the business every day. Because if we didn't bet the business every day on something, we weren't going to make it to the next day. So I really learned this idea of how to calibrate the legal advice or the, the business advice to the situation that you're in. And that really started you know, what I would say is the acceleration of my career to being kind of a consigliere or a, a second uh, person for all my clients, somebody you can call when you're really stuck, you know, or somebody you can call to say, hey, I, I, I know this is not a legal question, but maybe there's something here that you can help me with. And uh, in that way, being the first phone call. Well, understanding that legal side, right? And and then having those, uh, being so in tune with the business, I mean, that's going to, you're going to be able to provide some of the best direction and insight to that overall business strategy. So the value there, right? It just makes a ton of sense for that that executive that you're working with and that leadership team. So, I, I mean, brilliant. Richard. Totally I agree. And honestly, it's great hearing some of this background. And, and I feel like you touched on some great things there, you know, around that, how you had a mentor. Uh, but I also wanted to get back to this fact you mentioned about your wife being an entrepreneur, because I think yeah. that's something that's really challenging when you have like potentially two people in the family who are both entrepreneurs and how you get that sort of work-life balance. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you find that journey. Oh, that that's great. Actually, you know, it was really hard for me to get a date with my wife initially. Um, and, and maybe there's other reasons for that, Richard. But let me tell you my reasoning for it, I think. You know, she was busy running a business. And in many ways, this person she met in a bar in San Francisco wasn't that interesting compared to running the business. So I do think you're right that in many ways, like a business can be all consuming and um, you have to figure out a way to make time in your life for the people in your life. Uh, and it may, maybe, uh, you know, if you're not married, maybe that's for your friends, right? If you are married, maybe it's for your wife or your kids or your spouse or what have you. And, you know, eventually I got, I, I, you know, I, I came up with a combination of words and an offer she couldn't refuse, so to speak. So uh, that launched this great, you know, uh, dating um, story and, and marriage story. And now we have three kids. You know, my wife, um, when we had the second kid, you know, I think was really starting to feel like she needed to be home with the kids. 
And, you know, I, 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 we talked honestly about this when we got married about, you know, in many ways, I wanted my career to go in a trajectory where she could stay home if she wanted to, but I actually never thought she would, you know, and I, I've always been very proud of my wife for making great decisions and, and making hard decisions. And so she did, she sat down and she made the hard decision to stay home with the kids. And, you know, that's hard for an entrepreneur, right? Somebody who's got lots of ideas and lots of things going on and people knew her as a, as this entrepreneur. So I, I, you know, I, I, I'm very proud uh, of our family, and I'm very, in many ways, very uh, awed by my wife uh, for for taking that choice to stay home with the kids. I think it's so true. I think it's like an untold secret of successful entrepreneurs that they have this amazing foundation in their relationships, which allows them to go out and do the things and take the risks that obviously lets them be successful and you know chasing their ambitions. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, you know, not not many people describe it this way, but. You know, my wife and I are in this business together, you know, my business, right? And of course, this is with a law firm of 500 lawyers. I, I play an important role, but, but I'm only one of many here, right? But as a lawyer, one of the positive aspects of our career is that you, you really are your own kind of business. You know, I have clients, those clients rely on me. I have teams, those teams rely on me, and I rely on them for sure. And so in many ways, it, you know, this commitment I'm making to building a practice within this law, let's like say larger law firm, that my wife is there with me on that. And I think about her when I make this decision to what we're going to do. You know, for instance, this uh, I, I'm you know just recently took on the role of the managing member in San Francisco. And that is going to take a larger commitment of time for me. And that, that was a discussion I had with my wife when we made a decision about how we were going to manage that and manage the, the work-life balance. Uh, because the number one goal in my life is to stay married to my wife. Number two goal is to have my kids know and like me, you know, and, and respect me. And and we're we're, we're going to work on that first, and then then we're going to get to the business side. That's so that's like real, Steve. That's real, man. You know, and that's the most important thing. It's just it's those priorities in life. So it's it's great, you know, Richard. I'm gl- so glad that you touched on that, and Steve. You know, it's nice to to hear you kind of you know get into the weeds because I think a lot of people you know, can relate, especially in the med tech industry, when you think about how just grueling it is and what's required day in and day out to build a medical device company. I mean, you work with these guys firsthand. This is a medical, you know, this show is really intended for that medical device audience. You'd love for you to kind of dive into more about, you know, now these experiences, what kind of led you into the, the world of med tech? Um, how did all that begin? You know, let's kind of start there. Just super curious. Yeah, part of the reason I became a lawyer, right, was because I really wanted to help people. I, I felt like it was a way to play a big role in somebody's life and help them to solve a very complex problem. So part of the reason why I found myself back in the law is because of that, because I really liked the idea of of helping others. I didn't have to be the principal. I could be the person who could help the principal. And in many ways, the, the reason I spent a lot of time in med tech and life sciences is because of the same thing, which is that the, the work we're doing, it might be very technical on a contract or some kind of relationship with a manufacturer or something like that, or it might be some kind of regulatory issue or some kind of litigation or something like that. But you know, in, in reality, what we're working towards here is building something of value to others. And I, to be fair, Richard and I have talked about this before, you know, we're all here because of that, I think. You know, otherwise there's other uh, industries that might be easier. As you mentioned, you can't just Kyle, you can't just like wake up one day and decide that you're gonna be a medical device person. You know, you have to go through the training and the and the skills and you have to be very technical. 
and understanding how products work to be able to and, and how the human body works to understand how to bring that expertise into this business. It's not like a payment system or something like that. And you can go out and buy, you know, buy some developers and put that together. So I think in many ways, like it's a slog to get here. You have to have a background that's here. And then when you get here, you really have to have help and how to navigate the things that maybe you're not as expertise in. I, I often say, you know, my clients are me- mostly product people. And, it, you know, because you kind of almost have to be uh, to understand how to be, to build something that nobody else can build or how to build something that's valuable. Mm-hmm. And that often we miss out on the sales piece of it. And, and part, I try to impart to my clients a lot that as we move through the process of forming the company and, and, and getting investment for the company and then being attractive to either an IPO market or a or a, a buyer a buyer in the market you really have to be thinking about what is the competitive advantage for not just improving the human body but also what's your competitive advantage to being able to make money and i do think that that's a helpful thing to be thinking about early and i know m2d2 you know in part that's the kind of skill set they're trying to pass along is like where are the weaknesses in our in these companies and how can we, you know, how can we help mitigate those weaknesses by giving skills? Sure. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, you you, you got to be able, we always say it right here, you got to have something to sell, right? And you got to be able to sell it and it's got to fulfill a need, right? But the reality is, is that when you get into the world of medtech, to your point, it's really waking up every day, not focused on, on the money, but the impact that you're going to have on society and the outcomes that you're going to be able to ultimately create. And of course, along the way, making sure you're building and out and structuring that business to obviously generate some sort of revenue and profit and be able to sell it at the end of the day. That's, that's obviously critical, right? But uh, just so much more goes into it. And I like the comparison between medtech and startup starting maybe a payment system, right? They can just start maybe generating revenue and money right away. You know, it's just so much different. Um, so true, Kyle. I mean, something that Steve touched on there, I thought was kind of challenging. So Steve, when you spoke about your relationship. You said, when I found the appropriate words for my wife for to be my wife. And so I think that's you know very true of lawyer talk. And I wondered if you could kind of talk now a little bit about some of the nuances you, you find when you're working with clients and helping them map out some of those contractual details, which really matter in terms of a term sheet or negotiating those sort of crucial details that actually can go a long way to whether a company is successful or not. Yeah, you know, when you're a small company and you're dealing with big companies or big, big, bigger players on the other side, whether that's some kind of co-marketing agreement or something like that, we are dealing with some of the big pharma companies or whether you're trying to figure out how to get something, you know, get a license to some technology from a big player so that you can put that into your, into your product. Or you're trying to raise money from, let's say, sophisticated venture capitalists. You know, one of the things to think about when you're small is what you, you have to figure out what you really care about because you're not going to win all the points. You don't have the power in that stage to win all the points. Now, that's not true of all companies. Like, I suppose in some ways, like we look back at some of the stories like Google and Facebook, you know, they they wrote their own story in a way that is unlikely to happen to a lot of the folks we work with, you know. And so when you're a small company and, 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 you're, and you're struggling to get known, you're struggling to get the next deal, I think you really have to prioritize what matters. And that's where like having a lot of experience helps because you need to know what the range of issues are. And then you need to figure out, okay, in this company, with this situation, this entrepreneur, what are the things that that person should be caring about or what does that person care about? And let's make sure that we are very clear on those things. And when we do that contract, when we do that negotiation, 
that we're structuring it in a way that allows us not to feel bad about losing the things that are a priority for us, but make sure we get the things that we feel are a priority. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it rings so true. And I think it's something that you do so well. So um, a big shout out to Steve because he's been part of the impact program from day one, delivering our session on preparing for investment. And I think he really provides this really nice rounded uh, perspective on what it takes for startups to understand what the investors are looking for and equally how to position themselves in the best way forward to try and attract that investment. And again, if you're new to this as an entrepreneur, it's so important to really understand the game you're playing and again, the nuances of that game. Yeah, and one of the things that I try to do in the impact right uh, program is, is because of the word impact, I want to make sure we leave an impact. So, you know, one of the things I try to do is help entrepreneurs understand what are the things that my clients or, or maybe maybe I should say other people's clients because I try to help my clients understand these things. But one of the things I hear from entrepreneurs a lot about what they would have liked to have known, you know, before they did the deal and, and what they would do differently. And I try to, that's what I really try to focus on with with, with your cohorts. I know we covered a lot in that session. Um, I mean, and I personally have this big thing you do around investing because I think that's something that's often overlooked and just about how you share equity amongst original founders and people involved in the company. But apart from that, is there anything else that you think is really critical at that early stage? Yeah, well, another thing I talk about in that group is uh, is really around boards. I don't think it's intuitive that control of the board is really everything in a company. You know, the number of things that go to shareholders is quite limited, actually, by by law. Sometimes in contra- you know, by contract, when you do a venture capital deal, there's 200 pages of contract there. So sometimes you give away, you know, say rights to to approve something, and the shareholders will then vote on that. If you look at the core of the law, the law doesn't give shareholders a lot of rights. What where the rights are, where the power is, is in the board. The board hires and fires the CEO. The board makes decisions. So in in a lot of ways, I find that entrepreneurs are sometimes, you know, naive to to uh, to the idea that the board and control of the board. It is so critical to to them re- remaining in charge and, and driving the business forward. And I, I've been on both sides. I represent investors. I represent uh, companies. So I've, I've thought about this from both sides. I've argued on both sides. But in, in reality, in an early stage company, the less friction we have, the better, because we need to move quickly to capture the market opportunity. The other thing is often the entrepreneur knows best about where to go with the company. And sometimes investors can forget that they're not in the company every day and that they, they, they may be allowed, you know, some investors are allowed minority, take a loud minority position and can sometimes influence the way things go. And they're not always open to listening to the entrepreneur. So often when I find conflict with the board between an investor and, a, and, a, and an entrepreneur, and I'm on the investor side, I'll say, let's slow down and listen carefully to what the entrepreneur is saying, because there may be something here that you don't know about or you haven't seen before. And that's that's that relationship. But you know, sometimes the clarity that the founder is in charge, just the clarity that the founder is in charge can influence uh, you know, the decision-making process so that an investor is now looking at themselves as an advisor for somebody who has an who has a, who has some stake in this uh, decision for sure, but looks at themselves as an advisor and not somebody who's just telling you what to do. So before I get too far deep into this thing, I think the idea there is that clarity as to who is in charge is very helpful. And one of the things I feel like founders do is sometimes they, they're open to giving up control earlier than they should because they don't really understand how that control gets used in, in conflict. What what are the, I guess, Steve, someone who's, you know, not a lawyer and 
you know, you're, you're, what you do is, is pretty sophisticated, pretty complex. I guess, what are the key areas, you know, when you go to work with a early stage med tech or life science company, what are the, what are the key areas that you kind of focus on and what do you look to really try to drive and, and, and help them out with? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question because, you know, from a lawyer's perspective, there are things that I care about that are really, you know, in some ways not necessarily the kinds of things that maybe like the employees at a company or even the investor board members will will care about on a day-to-day basis. But when I look at a company, I often, you know, as you know, my target kind of client base is sort of like companies that have raised 10 million bucks or more. It's not that I don't represent startups, I don't start companies, but in, in a lot of ways, I target that. So I often go to, uh, let's say, like an event m 2 d throws or whatever, and I'm talking to entrepreneurs, you know, I'm really looking for people who are unhappy with their lawyer or don't feel like their lawyer is being accretive. They think that they're just paying a lawyer, you know, and wasting money. I'm looking for somebody who has a, who has a relationship that's, that's not helpful, you know, with their lawyer, and then try to help them understand what I do. But when I take a look at a company, a lot of times what I'm looking at is I'm looking at what what are the contracts they've entered into saying? Because often if you're if you're small and you, you don't have power, you you know you get into these contracts and the contracts are actually giving away more than they should. And I tell a story in the impact thing, which I think is a really helpful one, that I was on the buy side of a deal once where the company had entered into the company we were targeting had entered into an agreement with a third party, like with a with one of their, you know, like a third party that they were, you know, buying something from. And that third party asked for and got a writer first refusal if the company ever was sold. But they, you know, they they were a supplier of parts to it, you know, in, in a way of parts to us. So it, it, they were not going to buy our business. They didn't know what to do with our business. But they had that contractual right to be able to make an offer. And so when we were negotiating with these this party, we said to them on a Friday afternoon, look, we're going to give you an offer today, but we want an answer by Sunday. And they said, oh, you know, my mom's in an iron lung. My kid's home from college. We can't find somebody. He's in, he's in Bermuda. They had a lot of excuses. So I advised the client that we should make an offer that was 25% less than the offer we were willing to make because we were expecting that they were going to shop our offer to other people and potentially some of our competitors. And so I wanted to leave room so we could make uh, a higher offer. Well, what would happen there was that they had that contractual right and they needed to go through that process. And that's why it took them so long to get back to us. And of course, that third party waived their right to buy the company and they came back to us and accepted our offer. They left 25% of the deal on the table because of some contractual right that got into the documents, you know? So a, a lot of times what I do is I look at it and see what are the kind of big risks in this business. And sometimes they're in those contracts. And, you know, if you spot one of those things, it's not like we're going to like, you know, like, oh, you know, we're going to call everybody up. And do it. But, you know, we want to think about that. We want to think about how we're going to manage that. And to be honest, if they were better advised that target company, they would have been more upfront with us because we knew that third party wasn't going to buy them. It wouldn't have bothered us at all. And if they were just a bit more upfront with us about it, you know, say, hey, look, we have this thing in one of our contracts. We don't think it's going to be a big deal, but that but we have to go through that process. Let's do it together. Let's say. We would have made the strongest offer possible. Of course. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a great story. It's uh, super insightful too. Yeah, Richard. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I'm wondering like how you, Steve, you take all this entrepreneurial spirit and this kind of mindset into what you're doing with Mints. Um, as you touched on earlier on, you're a new managing partner there and kind of wonder if you can now touch on you know your vision for the company and where you see the company in a year, five years time. 
Yeah, you know, Mintz is such a great place. You know, as as my career has unfolded, law firms have gotten sort of larger and larger, and the cultures have sort of clashed as they grow because firms are coming together. And Mintz has always resisted that uh, temptation to be bought or to buy. And because of that, we've really kept together a very collegial and and culture that's meant to like. I, as I often say, we we treat uh, you know our, each other right, we treat our clients right, and. You know, that makes a big difference in the, the goals that I have for my life about, about you know, helping others, right? It makes a big difference. We have a great San Francisco office. You know, we have about 50 people in the office, about 25 lawyers. And we cover basically all the areas that you care about. But the, if you look at Mintz's practice across the country and the pillars that we really are strong in and want to grow, a lot of that is in life sciences and uh, private equity technology, and and that overlays perfectly with the San Francisco market. So there's an opportunity in the San Francisco market to, to really make a bigger impact. And that's that's what the firm and I are looking at right now, is how do we take what we already have in the San Francisco office and really make it open up and bloom? And, and that means adding a lot more practitioners who, who, who we think can make a needle-moving difference uh, in the firm. But it also means being a bit more embedded in the community. And, you know, I've been looking at opportunities for us, not just me, but everybody in the firm, from the legal assistants to the partners, and looking at ways that we can all contribute more to the community that we're in. And so that's part of the excitement for me is not only just the growth of of clients and revenue, but also the growth of the impact that Mints can make in the San Francisco market. So I think, yeah, it's good to be us right now. Like As I tell the team, it's like we're getting a lot of uh, support from the rest of the firm. And that means, you know, resources to grow. The firm is in a great situation. You know, l- luckily, we're not like some of our uh, competitors who are laying people off. And if you, if you don't have to focus on layoffs, you can focus on growth, right? And so I think in many ways, we're very lucky. And I look forward to, you know, uh, as we grow, I look forward to, to growing our relationship with you, you guys as well. Awesome. Yeah. Kyle, take it away. Yeah, no, I, I'm just really curious too, you know, within this, the med tech and life science space, I mean, what types of, what types of specific technologies or, or markets too are you um, most interested in at this moment? I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting space. I think the idea of bringing healthcare into the home and not just in the healthcare environment is a re, it's going to make a big difference. You know, I think. We all we already know more about our bodies. One of the things I was working on in, in the company I work for, which is CoreMD, the, the startup I worked at, was we were working on this idea of body computing, the idea that your your body's a computer, we're going to know how to diagnose and how to fix it in a way that's much deeper than our parents' generation. And the communication changes we saw with the internet and email and every, all that stuff and text, all this, all, over the last 30 years, those changes in communication, that's what healthcare is going to look like. We're going to see massive changes. And there'll be all sorts of things, maybe, you know, will change the way we think. But I really like the idea of bringing uh, healthcare into the home in a way that patients can get better diagnostic, better access, better treatment. And, you know, one of the things you got to be careful about is, you know, leaving it in the the hands of somebody who's not experienced is not always uh, effective. So you really have to figure out not only how to get that into into the home, but also how to connect back to doctors, you know, connect back to practitioners, you know, make sure that there's a much better communication line between the two. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, like those are things I'm looking at. When I look at a company and I get want to get passionate about it and help a company, it's like, are we able to extend the healthcare system 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, beyond just the hospital. Sure. Yeah. Sounds like the ultimate impact right there that would cover just about everyone. So yeah, definitely. Steve, I know we've covered a lot today, you know, talking about the foundation from your personal relationships to your business relationships, the finer details of contractual relationships with your investors and your customers. I wonder if you could just finally reflect on any sort of top tips to entrepreneurs who are thinking about getting started in the medtech space. Yeah, I think one of the things is that always remain flexible. I think that's one of the things we, it's hard as a human. You really like to go back to what you've done before. You can sometimes get very stuck on one thing. And what I found is that successful businesses or successful business people are people who can get outside of that sort of rock brain and think about making a decision, even if it's going to maybe be a mistake. And if you make a mistake, don't worry about it. Just keep making decisions until you get it right. And the businesses that fail are the ones that don't make decisions, that get frozen, that get stuck. So I try to tell my clients, like, you know, think flexibly here. Let's like, let's revisit this to make sure that if we're going to say no to something, that that we we're, we know why we're saying no and we've thought it through. And if we're going to say yes to something, we've thought it through. Uh, and I'm and I'll finish on this, which is one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was my father, a great entrepreneur, who said uh, some of the best deals he did were the deals he didn't do. And so I think in some ways you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to be flexible enough to say, I've tried my best to make this deal happen. It's not going to work. I'm going to move on to something else. Great advice. Brilliant, Steve. Love that, man. Hey, and you you also, you touched a lot about the importance of the boardroom and you, you know, I know you've got a podcast out there. Tell us more about that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah. Appreciate uh, First of all, I'm a, I'm a big podcast uh, fan. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And um, I find it to be a great way, but moving between things to be able to continue uh, this lifelong journey of learning. So I put together a podcast called In the Boardroom, which is really meant to give practical advice about aspects of the boardroom that may not be clear. It's meant for growth stage companies where there's a lot of challenges and speed and other things, investors. You know, a growth stage company could be a private company, could be a public company. We, We have perspectives for both. But the idea is like demystifying. Like, what is going on around these various topics? How should I be thinking about various things? The most recent one we did was on down rounds, which is this like, concept of raising money at a price per share lower than the last round. I don't think all my clients are going to have that challenge this year, but there are going to be clients this year uh, who are going to have rounds like that. And we haven't seen that in 10 years. And so what I wanted to do is bring some perspective to entrepreneurs and investors about what you might want to think about. Because I've been through the 01 crisis. I've been through the 08 crisis. This is a different crisis in many ways because there's actually money available. You know, in those crises, there was no money available. So if you were out of money, you were out of money, it was over, right? Good companies will get funded in this in this environment because there's still money available. But, you know, that money is going to be constricted and you're going to have to be a lot uh, smarter about how you look for that money and how you, how you position yourself for it. That, you know, the podcast is meant to bring some of these tips that I've learned serving basically uh, serving board members as a, as the company council, you know, bringing some of those things we've learned to the folks that, you know, do, you know, I do a board meeting uh, every week, you know, people who do board meetings every quarter or whatever, you know? Mm. Well, I think it's important for so many people, you know, in the world of business to really understand what goes on in a boardroom. So, you know, it's a really interesting topic. I think it's going to be incredibly valuable. So, um, all the best and looking forward to, to checking out your podcast. Um, definitely. definitely. Yeah. I would just say you know, the way you're educating the ecosystem and the values you spoke about around community and impact 
I'm sure under your leadership, Steve, that you know, excited to see where you take the Mint's office. And of course, looking forward to collaborating, continuing our collaboration, I should say, uh, with M2D2. That's great. Thank you, Richard and Kyle. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh, heck yeah, Steve. Very exciting. Hey, me? Yeah. Well, this was fantastic. You know, we appreciate having you. So, hey, with that said, I'd say that just about does it. Had ourselves a great conversation. But before we go, what's the best way for maybe a medtech, life science, early stage company, someone like that, uh, to get in touch with you? Absolutely. So, again, I'm Steve Osborne. Uh, and if you look at us on mints.com, M-I-N-T-Z.com, you'll find my bio on there. Uh, so feel free to reach out there. Uh, you'll also notice that if you ever send me an email, I'll send you an email back and I'll have my cell phone number on it. That means, you know, feel free to reach out anytime. So, and my cell phone number's on, there, on our website as well. Feel free to call me. I love, you know, I love what I do. Uh, I'm passionate about what I do. Um, I love to help people. You know, if it's a good fit to be a client, great. But if not, I'd be happy to help you and make sure that what, I leave you better than I found you in the conversation. So feel free to reach out. That's what it's all about right really? there, Steve. Awesome, man. All right. Well, hey, uh, I'd say that just about does it. So we're signing off here. Again, Steve Osborne, managing member of Mince Levin, San Francisco office, leading the life science and med tech space uh, with, again, your exceptional knowledge and experience in, in law uh, and business and growth strategy. So thank you again, Steve. Uh, until next time, I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Mikkeljohn. Yep. And you're listening and watching the MedTech Impact Podcast. Keep innovating. <laughs>